Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, we are continuing our series on the 22 major arcana of the tarot. So far, we have discussed the Fool, the Empress, the Moon, the Tower, the Wheel of Fortune, the Star, Death, and now the Chariot, in that order. Now, this isn't the order in which these trumps appear in the tarot in a manner perhaps appropriate to the intuitive lunar knowledge that the tarot represents, we have been wending our way through this series by means of a series of hunches. Each tarot episode has been born of an obscure conviction that each card is the one we need to be talking about at the moment. As for why we feel we should be talking about the chariot right now, I couldn't even tell you. Perhaps it's as simple as wanting to talk about a card that isn't as high-minded and spiritual as some of the ones we've already done. The chariot is about getting somewhere. With the executive function of the self as the charioteer, and the chariot as its vehicle, the self's energizing purpose. In this vein, cartomancer and former professor Camellia Elias susses out the core potentiality of this card by imagining how it combines with others. When the chariot is seen in company with the devil, it suggests a criminal, the one who puts diabolical impulses into action. When combined with death, we get a harvester, with the moon an astronaut, and with the tower we get an accident-prone tourist. In some cards, for example the card that precedes the chariot in the tarot series, the lovers, we feel compelled to psychologize the figures, but as Elias remarks, the charioteer is unreadable. If he has inner conflicts about his single-minded mission, he's not letting on. The chariot might just be a vehicle, and the charioteer might just be a driver. But to say only that would make for a short and dull episode. And besides, if the charioteer is shallow, it is a shallowness with the potential to reverse into depth. For, as it says in Mark 8.36, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? In the very single-mindedness by which it pursues its ends, the ego arrives at the exhaustion of those ends and is obliged to contemplate a greater one. The line previous to the one quoted earlier supplies a vision of how this reversal into depth might look. Jesus says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. Keep this passage in mind when you hear J.F. and me discussing the hermetic formulations of our known friend, a.k.a. Valentin Tonberg, in Meditations on the Tarot. Or, if Zen Buddhism is more your thing than Christianity, you might keep in mind the following koan from the Muman Khan. Master Getan said to a monk, Kechu made a cart, whose wheels had a hundred spokes. Take both front and rear parts away and remove the axle. Then what will it be? I'm not saying I know the answer to that, 
but it is an excellent question. Right about now, I'd like to announce that JF and I are teaming up on another course, the Twin Peaks Mythos. Starting June 8th, your plucky co-host will lead a four-week view-along of selected episodes from David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks saga. Each week, participants will meet online to watch an episode along with the hosts, whose dialogue will serve as a real-time commentary on what is unfolding on the screen. After each screening, we will have a seminar-style conversation for which there are no prerequisites of any kind, save curiosity and a willingness to get weird. Our goal is to start thinking of the Twin Peaks world as a mythos that transcends its source, much like Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, which long ago transcended its original milieu and has become a hermeneutic device for interacting with reality. What does Twin Peaks reveal to us about the world? Is Twin Peaks a mere fiction, or is it a hyperstition? This series of view-alongs will begin to sketch out answers to these and other questions. Go to NeuroLearning for more information. We'll have a link handy in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. So before we go any further, I would like to pour one out for Rachel Pollock, Mm. one of the great masters of tarot hermeneutics, died only a few weeks ago, I think. And I am not going to pretend to have had a deep knowledge of her works, which were many and varied, not only in tarot, but also science fiction or just general SF, a woman of parts of many accomplishments, somebody known to... A lot of our listeners, and I think probably personally known and loved by a good many people in our orbit. So while I'm not going to pretend to have been a devoted follower of her career and works, the only book of hers I have is Tarot Wisdom, which is an absolutely indispensable gazetteer of tarot knowledge. Nevertheless, just want to start off by pouring one out for uh, a major figure in our scene. Hats off to Rachel Pollock. Nothing much more to say about that, but I will start off by invoking her name as a way into what we're talking about today, which is the seventh arcanum of the tarot, the chariot. And I suggested this. This was my bright idea. It was your bright idea to do another tarot episode, which feels exactly right for some reason. I'm not sure why. It's just a rhythm thing. Well, if we want to finish the series. Yeah, get on the stick. And the last one we did was early January and it's now May Day. So maybe we should get our We should save the hermit for the end because we'll do the hermit when we're about 92 years old. (laughs) When you are 92, I'll be like 83. A sprightly 83. Hopefully. Hopefully. I can't, I wonder about that sometimes. I imagine us like, because this is going well. I like this. Um, yeah, are we going to be doing it. this when we're both in our 80s? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's thinking ahead. Why, yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> our audience can age with us and hear us getting progressively crankier and less flexible in our opinions. Yeah. And at the end, it'll just be like an hour and a half of mouth breathing <laughs> in stereo. <laughs> Although I know a decent number of remarkably spry 
elderly people who, if they had a podcast, one feels oh. that they would have been able to keep that podcast going until they draw their last breath. Absolutely. So, and I am a believer, not that wisdom is an invariable complement of age, but that it at least aging opens up the possibility of certain kinds of insight that are unobtainable otherwise. Correct. I would say that age is a precondition of wisdom. It's yes. not the only condition, but it's one of the conditions. You don't get wisdom without age. As the logicians say, a necessary but not sufficient condition. Exactly. <laughs> Which isn't to say that our younger listeners are not themselves possessed of a certain degree of wisdom and often a wisdom that seems to kind of vanish like a spring snow <laughs> as you get older. Yes, that's true. Like, I am reminded of this talking to my kids that they know things I don't, but that I used to know. You're right. You know, there's a wisdom that's proper to youth as well. Youthful folly, as it's called in the I Ching. Yes. It's a type of wisdom. It's crazy wisdom, yeah. Yeah, as the Tibetans say. Yeah. And I mean, in classic I Ching fashion, everything is always reversing into its opposite. And so youthful folly can become its own kind of crazy wisdom. You're quite right about that. One thing, actually, this is something one, some commentator on the I Ching said, and I, I think this is true, that one thing that recommends the I Ching as a system is that it actually has room for silly shit. Right. One of the moving lines of youthful folly is the hair on the chin. Basically like a foppish goatee. Imagine an affected facial hair situation. Right. That's like a wonderful emblem of folly, right? It's affectation. We just did this whole right. thing on the Patreon about affectation. And so something that I like about the I Ching is that it isn't all cosmic wisdom, right? There's room in that vast cosmic filing cabinet for silly shit as well. And actually, this is why I wanted to do the chariot. Because when we're talking about certain kind of very impactful cards, like the tower, death, the moon, the fucking fool, the first card we did, these are all cards that... You actually have to work to keep your feet on the ground. Like I remember when we were doing the fool card saying like, yeah, but what about just garden variety idiocy? What about the fool as fool and not, you know, the fool as the initiate, the fools and all of the various highfalutin meanings that are customarily given the card. And the chariot, it seems to me, is a little bit like youthful folly. It is a card that does have spiritual significance, but it also just means a car. Like yeah. if you're, if you were thinking about buying a car and you pulled the chariot, it might just mean that you're going to buy a car. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. And it's old meaning is triumph, glory. And so like, it could be as simple as the glory of owning a really dope ride, mm. you know, or having some kind of really cool, I don't know. I'm looking around my office. My electronic typewriter. Right. I didn't need to get it, but I like it. Yeah. It's cool. It's a powerful conveyance of my thoughts. Well, that gets us uh, right to the core me, of it. Yeah. it. It allows me to move in style. You don't have to move in style, but the chariot implies not just that you've got a car, but you've got a nice car. Think of Superfly's mm. car in... Uh, the film Superfly from 1972. Sorry, you were going to say something. This gets us right into it. No, but and, that interpretation yeah. of it reminds me of the grace 
hexagram in the I Ching, which uh, mm. adornment, you know, the one that has to do with style. There's a whole hexagram that has to do with adornment, style, affectation, and its affordances. There's something about the character there, because it's called the chariot. It could have been called the charioteer, which would have been more in keeping with the rest of the major arcana, which are mostly characters, not all, but... And it is a charioteer. So it's a chariot and a charioteer, and there's an indistinguishability between the two. The chariot is also the one who rides the chariot and the horses. What I've been getting out of the research I've done into this card is that it has a kind of double meaning. It signifies, in a sense, triumph, mastery, but also the danger, its reversal, like the, the reversal of the master into the tyrant, let's say. The charioteer is in control. That's the image we get. It's someone who's in control. They're so in control that in the Marseille tarot, they don't even have reins on their horses. Like the charioteer is holding a scepter. He's controlling the horses with his mind. He's like, it's, <laughs> it's more like a car than a, a traditional chariot. And so our known friend in Meditations on the Tarot really has a, a beautiful little, and it's a shorter chapter on the chariot, where he essentially, what he's arguing is that it's a symbol of mastery, but it's also a symbol of the enantiodromia of mastery. It's reversal into a, a weird form of slavery to the self, to the ego. Mm. The, the idea is that once you've gained a certain level of mastery, temptation comes in, pride. The idea that you did it all on your own, that having mastered the field, you are now the master, whereas the true master is the one who realizes that he must never be as obedient as when he has transcended and mastered obedience. Like The way that another writer that I may quote later puts it is that it's a symbol of the ego, the chariot. And the ego inheres in, in logos, in its capacity to make distinctions, to measure, to inform, to move like a chariot through the world. But there's a temptation to see the logos as emanating from you. Whereas what the charioteer must remember is that you are participating in it. It's not just yours. And so the danger of taking mastery past its proper domain, which is a form of service, and turning it into a kind of tyranny. So I see the chariot as a symbol of both a personal ego and the species ego of humans in general. And mm -hmm. a lot of the thinking I've done has been around that. Anyways, rambling, please, the ball's in your court. Well, you set about half a dozen balls over the net. That's why I stopped, yeah. So I will have to just choose one to spank back over the net. Oh, by the way, and this is very important, while you were talking, I quickly looked it up, and the hair on the chin moving line, in fact, belongs to the grace hexagram, not the youthful folly hexagram. And uh, I feel that I have to say that because my vainglory, my pride is such that I would never have forgiven myself for getting the wrong hexagram. You're giving us an, an example of proper mastery, which involves admitting when your co-host had one over you. <laughs> well, well, if I start doing that, I would never be done. So I think I'm just going to edit this whole bit out. No, no, it's... It, I, must at all, I must at all times um, pretend to be fully in control of every fully situation. Fully in control, yeah. But no, but there's something that happens when we start debating or something like that. When you can feel the chariot archetype entering, when you need to be right. And you you can't afford to be wrong. You're like a fucking charioteer just riding off into some Bronze Age battle, and you're <laughs> early Iron Age perhaps. And you are you can't afford to look sideways. You just you have to keep going, right? Yeah. But the thing is that that might have a kind of heuristic value, a kind of like 
temporary pragmatic value, but to live in that. Can you imagine living in a racing chariot? It'd be awful in an awful place to live. But a lot of people live in the chariot. They're constantly yes. moving. You just see them zoom by every day. It's like, Jesus Christ, he's still in there. <laughs> They're in one of those Elon Musk self-driving <laughs> cars. And they're they're always very animated, but you just see them for a brief second as they flash by. Sometimes they're having breakfast. <laughs> so I'm going to just pick up on one detail. Sure. Something you mentioned, which in the Marseille Tarot, the wheels are drawn in a weird way that they're coming out the sides of the chariot rather than being forward and back facing the way wheels are normally <laughs> in any kind of conveyance um the, <laughs> the terror was not designed by an engineer let's just leave it no at that. <laughs> well you know it's one of those things where if it happens a lot when you're looking at earlier tarot decks and you say does it look this way because the person drew it had so little skill they didn't know any other way to suggest that there are wheels on this thing otherwise the guy's just sitting in a box right yeah it always, there's a big difference yeah. between just sitting in a box and sitting in a chariot. Well, we have to put wheels on the chariot. Well, I can't see them in realistic perspective, so now we have to put them in sideways. Yeah, close enough, you know. Is it that? Or does that actually mean something? Because, of course, if the wheels are sideways, that chariot isn't going anywhere. Or if it is, it's going sideways, but it's not going in the direction that the horses that are facing us are going to go. Hmm. Interesting. So this is from Rachel Pollock's Tarot Wisdom, in fact. This is on page 100 of that, where she writes, My friend and fellow tarotist Zoe Madoff sees the chariot as a vehicle for divine will. Emphasis on divine. The charioteer does not need to take charge or hold the reins because he makes himself the vehicle for what needs to happen. Mm. Not my will but yours becomes his motto. Or as I always think when we're getting close to that concept, thy will be done. That line from the Lord's Prayer has always been resonant with me, thy will be done, because one immense burden that we are all carrying around is the burden of our own will. And the chariot is generally considered to symbolize the will, the individual will. And I don't think the will is a bad thing, and maybe we can return to that, but I will say that it can be a bloody great burden to drag around with you. The idea that you are responsible for everything, that everything that will happen in your life is something that you will make happen. And thy will be done is somewhat of a surrender, a peaceful and relieving surrender to the notion that actually you can affect only a fairly small subset of things in your life. And you most of the time aren't even really aware of the full consequences of any decision that you make. And so there is a certain wisdom in seeing the journey of your will, what you want in this life. And again, I'm emphasizing there's nothing wrong with having a will. Nothing gets done without the will, right? But there's also a kind of journey of the will that leads to its own cessation. Not because you're spiting the will, but actually because you are fulfilling it. Yeah. And that is the moment of thy will be done. I mean, this is the great aim of magic and for that matter, spiritual life, your will fuses with, becomes one in the same as a divine will or a higher will. And sometimes doing that will involve very much subjecting your personal will to a kind of uh, an ordeal that it would never otherwise accept. 
for instance, thy will be done. That line, other than in the Lord's Prayer, which is, of course, where we all know it from. But there's that moment in Gethsemane when Jesus is crying and sweating blood. He's having a major panic attack because he knows what's going to start any moment when the soldiers come and get him. And he knows what he's going to have to go through, which is like torture on a level that few people ever experience, right? And so he's afraid. And he says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me or take this cup from me, is how it's usually translated. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Mm -hmm. So it's like, please do something so this doesn't happen. But ultimately, I have to hitch my will on yours. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's an acknowledgement of the, the ego. It's not the extinguishing of the ego, such as that my ego has been eliminated, so I will not feel this torture. I will just go through it with the pure divine will that has transcended. I will be my torturer and myself at the same time. It will be mm. as pleasurable as it will. No, it's not that. It's like mm. fully, fully embodying your ego as an instrument and as a being, as a character you're playing in this drama, but at the same time, knowing that ultimately this character that you are is simply participating in something bigger and like allowing these two kind of strata to coexist. I've always been very touched by that line. I think it's amazing that it would be in the story. Take this cup from my lips, not my will, but yours. Yeah. I need to noodle this out, but this seems to me to be not too far from the spirit of our known friend, a.k.a. Valentin Tonberg, when he writes about the, he's like, this is the secret, right? This is the, the Christian hermetic secret of renunciation. Mm -hmm. He starts messing with the hermetic dictum as above, so below, which anybody who spent five minutes contemplating magic has probably heard. That's Hermes Trismegistus from the Emerald Tablet. Okay, so this is on page 148, Meditations on the Tarot by Anonymous. Here is a fundamental law of sacred magic. One could formulate it in the following way. That which is above being as that which is below. Renunciation below sets in motion forces of accomplishment above, and the renunciation of that which is above sets in motion forces of accomplishment below. He says... It is not desire which bears magical realization, but rather the renunciation of desire that you have formerly experienced, of course, for renunciation through indifference has no moral and therefore no magical value. So there's an affirmation of desire as you need to desire something greatly in order to renounce it or else you're not renouncing. Yes. It's like those monks who like, they found a loophole by getting castrated you know, like, and then it was, they were forbidden from doing that because you're not renouncing anything if you're castrated. You're renouncing your testicles, I suppose. But then everything after that. After that, you're free, right? In a way, I don't know if that's actually the case, but there was a big debate well, a about that kind in the of, early certain, days. Yeah, yeah. A certain kind of freedom, I suppose, but yeah, no, definitely. not a freedom of which I wish to avail myself. Right. But I've, I already know that you would lose your eyes before losing your testicles, so... Remember that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That came up. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it. So continue. He says, desire and then renounce. Here we have the practical, magical meaning of the law of reward. To say that one has to renounce what one desires amounts to saying that one has to practice the three sacred vows, obedience, poverty, and chastity. For the renunciation must be sincere in order for it to set in motion the forces of realization from above. And it cannot be so when it lacks the air, light, and warmth of the sacred vows. 
It is necessary, therefore, to understand once and for all that there is no true sacred magic, nor mysticism, gnosis, or hermeticism outside of the three sacred vows, and that true magical training is essentially only the practice of the three vows. That wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it gets to the same point, which is that there's yeah. a kind of facile, silly, almost kind of counterproductive interpretation of the three sacred vows, which is that, well, it means that the opposite of obedience, chastity, and uh, what's the other one? Poverty. Poverty. The opposite are bad. Riches are bad. Disobedience is bad. No, they need to be there. The renunciation involves a kind of affirmation of it. And it's by renouncing something from below that you activate new powers above. And so the chariot has yes. this kind of doubling character, right? Where it represents both the charioteer as the simple ego striving for dominance and triumph in this world, but also at the same time, the ego that has renounced this world in order to gain something from above, which doesn't imply, however, a negation of this world. It's simply a way of dealing with this world from a position of enlightenment, for lack of a better term. Desire and then renounce. Here we have the practical magical meaning of the law, and laws and scare quotes, of reward. It actually is remarkably similar to what we were talking about with Connor about Hellraiser. Yes. When you brought up The Sound of Music and Zizek's somewhat cynical interpretation of it, which is just sort of like, um, actually, how, now that I'm bringing it up, I'm trying to paraphrase it. The idea is that the novice nun has fallen in love with uh, a man. And she goes to her convent saying, you have to take me back because she's been sent to work with the family, the von Trapp family. She comes back to the monastery and tells her mother superior, I have to stay cloistered. I can't deal with this. This is very dangerous. And then she sings, uh, climb every mountain and basically encourages her to fall in love and to go for it. And uh, Zizek's interpretation is that this is the esoteric truth of Catholicism is that it forbids in order to allow. It forbids the pleasures of this world by making them sinful so that now, knowing their sinfulness, you can fully indulge in them. You know, that's kind of like yeah. the, the short version. Of it. But again, that's just a cynical take on what Tomberg is saying here. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. It's just the other side of it. Yes. I do believe that Catholicism does affirm the pleasures of this world. Look at, you know, just traditionally Catholic countries like Spain and Italy. They know how to party. The carnival, you know, that whole tradition in the Southern Europe. But at the same time, it doesn't renege on the characterization of these pleasures as worldly and therefore ultimately something to be renounced. And this puts Catholicism in the same zone as Hinduism or any other really, or Buddhism, any other path of, of spiritual discipline. Well, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to really know anything about tantric spirituality, but it seems to me to be connected also with that. The idea of like actually, and particularly in like kind of sex magical practices where you are consciously invoking the forces of desire. You mm -hmm. are evoking them into manifestation. But the skill of it, the art of it is to, eh, I guess the question is, what do we mean by renunciation? Because renunciation can mean simply saying no to indulge in something and then to say no to it. But notice he's just talking about desire, just like kindling something in your heart, kindling a passion. What you're doing is you're kindling desire, even to the point of actually like engaging in sexual rights, like in sex magic, 
there's a metaphor I'm going for here. I'm just trying to noodle it out. But in a sense, the desire isn't allowed to go where it normally goes. Well, that's the idea with tantric is that you don't reach climax, right? Yes. My my understanding of tantric practice is very limited, (laughs) but my understanding is that you engage in the sexual act, but you postpone the climax. It's the same as courtly love in that sense, right? That maybe there's a form of tantra of yes, courtly love. Where yeah. you're you're whipping up desire, but the desire rather than going to the place of fulfillment, which is almost like when lightning hits a lightning rod and it grounds out the charge and renders it spent. Like mm-hmm. you don't allow the desire to be spent. It's right. almost as if you create some kind of like anti-grav containment device like from a science fiction film where this um radioactive substance this powerful and dangerous substance is held in suspension where it can't inflict harm it can't generate karma Mm -hmm. and becomes what it transforms in that fashion I'm Meredith. And I'm Gabe. And we're the hosts of Cosmophonia, a podcast about all things music and outer space. We'll be talking about music by people from all times and all worlds. And the ideas that inspired them. Join us on the occasion of every full moon, wherever you find your podcasts. Or at Cosmophonia.com. Okay, so our man here is Plato. And I haven't read this in any of the research I've done. I've seen no one, I'm sure many have, observe that the chariot card gives us precisely the image of the charioteer from Plato's Phaedrus, where Plato is trying to describe the architecture or the composition of the soul. And the image he uses in the Phaedrus is a charioteer with two horses drawing his chariot, but the horses are opposed to one another. One horse represents what we call the id, forces of instinctive desire, um, appetites. And the other horse is the moral, maybe the superego, morality, judgment. And then the charioteer is reason in Plato's rather mystical interpretation of that concept. And the idea is that the soul is the composite. And what the soul's doing it is trying to keep the horses moving together in parallel. But of course, they're always at odds. And what happens is that because it's very difficult to keep the horses moving in a straight line, the charioteer is constantly bobbing up into the world of forms and then back down into the world of manifestation, never able to remain fully in the world of forms. Plato is presenting us an image of the soul as a kind of perpetual state of conflict. And that Mm. means affirming and controlling desire. You're never done. You never get castrated and then I'm done. I'm, you know, like there's, (laughs) it's, it's a never ending process of trying to like correct this trajectory. And this is the key thing for Plato. The force that drives the chariot is Eros itself. The energy that takes you into the world of forms, the love of beauty, right? Specifically in Phaedrus, the love of beauty is what brings you to enlightenment. It's desire, but it's desire redirected, directed at the right thing. Instead of desiring the object, you desire the form that the object embodies. When you desire the form instead of the object itself, you're on the proper path to enlightenment for Plato. So Hmm. it's like if you just desire a person sexually, and you have no notion that what you find desirable or, or attractive in that person is a form, right? Something that is atemporal, something that is a causal, 
then you, of course you're falling you're like the chariot coming down towards the earth and possibly crashing but if you can see the form you're still desiring the person but the person becomes the kind of crystal in which you perceive the form that they embody and therefore mm. your desire is redeemed in a certain sense so it's a redemption of desire and that idea that platonic idea really gets imported into mystical christianity i think one thing that i like about that is the emphasis on duality the mm-hmm. idea that the charioteer is pulled in different directions cuz this brings us back to the card one of the things about this card are those weird looking horses for one thing they have no hind end they look like they're growing directly out of the chariot as if in fact the chariot and the horses were one in the same or consubstantial yeah. and they are pointing in different directions though looking in the same direction generally the charioteer and the horses are all looking off to the left of mm. the card. Nevertheless, one thing that tarotologists or tarotists have made much of is the sense of duality. There are two horses. They seem to be pointing in d- different directions, even though they're looking in the same direction. In fact, the dualities go beyond that. There are the two wheels sticking out transversely, which is weird. There's the two faces on the pauldrons, those kind of shoulder pieces on the charioteer's armor, each one of which has a face. Again, something that has been much interpreted and much commented upon, but at the very least, we could say that it strongly implies the notion of duality. And this idea that this card symbolizes will, well, it is a commonplace of many spiritual traditions to understand the will as having a lesser and greater aspect, the lesser being your own selfish notions of what you want, or what the ego wants, but then the higher will being thy will be done. And yes. the aim there being the fusion of the individual will, the ego, with the higher will. Yeah. And not necessarily the extinction of the ego, but rather its integration into the... That's the, that's the key thing, right? It's like in the, Aleister Crowley. Yeah, the, the skillful use of it. I mean, this is what I understand Tantra to be, a kind of alchemy whereby baser stuff, like a purely egoistic will or a kind of sexual desire that is just sexual desire, you know, without reference to context or like, you know, the feeling that one might have of wanting to have sex with somebody who like is married or, you know, you're in a committed relationship and you want to have sex with somebody who isn't your partner or whatever. You want to have sex with somebody who for one reason or another is verboten right? But the heart wants what it wants. And so this is not an unusual predicament that human beings find themselves in wanting something that is objectively bad for them. And so there are a couple of different ways you could manage desire. You could just take a purely renunciatory view, which I do not believe is what our known friend is after, where you just say, none of that. Extinguish desire. Don't have sex with fucking anybody. That's how you deal with those potentially harmful feelings, right? No, that's not what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. But then that obviously has certain problems. I mean, we don't need to talk in the mystical literature to understand what they are. It's observable in our everyday life. The stuff that you repress becomes a shadow that can just dominate your life and in ways that you don't even understand. It can be very psychologically unhealthy. Okay. So then if you can't just cut off, the part of you that desires, then what do you do with that? 
if, for example, you find yourself in the grip of a desire that you know is harmful to you and others, what do you do with that? It seems to me that this inner alchemy we're talking about is where you're trying to do something with the desire. You're trying to use it, use it to fuel emotion to what is higher. And so the chariot in its representation of dualities, a duality that is fully present in Plato's myth of the charioteer in Phaedrus. I'll leave Plato off to one side, but this is what I mean by like the idea of, you know, cultivating desire, but not allowing it to discharge in its usual way. Like courtly love, you're saying courtly love, that seems to me to be a perfect example. So what's the classic situation? The poet is a courtier in the court of a prince. Yeah, the, the, the knight. knight. It's the knight. It's, yeah. it's the poets are writing about knights. So the idea is that the knight is in love with most of the knights were single and they were young men working for a lord. The lord had a wife. And so the wife often became the object of amorous desire on the part of all the knights around. And this, of course, yeah. leads to all kinds of trouble in the myth of King Arthur, in the legends of King Arthur, where Lancelot ends up having an affair with Guinevere and spells doom for everybody. So. Uh, and you've got to figure that that must have happened a lot. All, all the time, because the Lord is often an older man and surrounding himself with young often men. Often gone from the castle for months at a time, off on military campaigns and whatnot. Yes. The whole feudal system was such that he had to surround himself with these young, strapping young men. And of course, he would marry a younger woman. And so you have this situation was probably just baked in to the system as something that will happen again and again. So the solution is to develop what we call courtly culture, which from my understanding is that the knight's desire for the lady is acknowledged, is professed. This is the idea of the knight offering a rose to his lord's wife before the jousting match, right? And that desire is cultivated, but it is fulfilled through valor in their functions as knights. In dedicating their acts of valor to the lady, they fulfill their love for her. Um, yes. So that's my understanding of it. Yeah. But there's also the phenomenon of poets writing about their own yes. love for unapproachable courtly ladies or untouchable courtly ladies, where the poetic act, act of artistic creation, is generated from the heat of that unfulfillable desire. So desire is not repressed, but in a certain sense, whipped up, but within, as I say, a kind of containment field that allows it to remain suspended, where it generates a kind of power, mm -hmm. almost becomes like a, a, yeah, becomes like an engine for powerful and positive transformation, for getting what you want. Yeah. And this brings us back to what our known friend means when he says, that which is above being as that which is below. So Hermes Trismegistus being right in saying as above, so below. Renunciation below sets in motion forces of accomplishment above. Yeah. And the renunciation of that which is above sets in motion forces of accomplishment below. Okay, just right now we're in the first part of that kind of mirrored proposition. Renunciation below, like, okay, I'm not going to fuck the Lord's wife. But I am going to feel that without allowing, I'm going to allow the desire while it 
renunciation is complicated. It's the renunciation of its deliverance to its expected end. It's discharging. It's grounding. So it really is is reining in those horses and redirecting them. Yes. But the horsepower still comes from the desire, right? Yes, exactly. And I think your mention of Plato is right on the money because that idea that like you desire the person, that's a kind of profane eros, but the higher eros, the higher love is the love of the form, whatever could be said to lie behind or constitute the truth of yeah. the temporary phenomenal expression of that truth, right? Yes, yes. In the context of medieval Christianity, the higher love was the love of God. So any right. type of love down here below is essentially in its true form a desire for union with the divine. So whatever it is you love, whether you love like fountain pens or tea or uh, a particular person or whatever it is, it is a manifestation of this love of the divine. Right. But you can't access the love of the divine in the abstract. You can't just love the divine in the abstract. So you have to find some vessel for it in this world. It's yes. good that you have those teacups to collect or whatever. So long as you see through your teacup collection, the form that is being expressed through it, which is the beauty of the divine in itself. And right. so courtly love was more than just a way to keep knights behaving properly. It was actually a way of tempering an entire warrior culture. Yes. And I'm not a medievalist, so of course there are counter arguments here and counterfactuals and all sorts, but... And there were medieval commentators who said courtly love is bullshit. I mean, yeah. it's like, there sure. were lots of people, even at the time who were like, yeah, this is a, this is an ideal. This isn't maybe social reality. Of course. But insofar as the ideal existed as an ideal, it did provide a model for justifying certain institutions. So that could be good or bad, but also just directing the flows of libido such that the best outcome obtains possible under the circumstances. Right. You know, essentially, the medieval feudal system, again, this is, I'm saying things that will, people will take me to task on, but who cares? It's my opinion. My opinion is that the medieval feudal system is anarcho-syndicalism, essentially in practice. Hmm. What I mean is that it's basically just a barn full of dry hay and all you need is one little match and the whole thing goes up. It could all fall apart at any time because it's this crazy rhizomatic multiplicity of bonds that all have to hold for the whole thing to work. How does it work? It can only work by infusing it with a culture that will incentivize its working. <laughs> um, mm. Because it's essentially a bunch of warrior cultures that suddenly found a way to exist in this very fragile system that was fully dependent on a kind of mystical ideal, I think. Mm. That's the way that I would interpret it. And it couldn't work forever, and it didn't work in the end. It, it fell to pieces. But I do believe that courtly love, no matter how uh, questionable its application was at the time, did have a part to play in creating the culture, for example, that Chaucer is writing from. It created a culture that was more than simply the warrior culture that served as its initial raw material. So it did, in fact, infuse some higher cultural note. I think so. Into its society. Yeah. I think so. And it's, I mean, it's unpopular to say that. It's the, the right thing to do is to dwell on how oppressive the Middle Ages were, but there's a lot more to it. And the more you read actual medieval sources, the more you see how absolutely bonkers 
our popular idea of the Middle Ages is. It wasn't at all what we think it was. It was very different. And it, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to read medieval texts because you get to see how differently people saw things back then. It's a totally different way of looking at reality. And it is worth remembering that the tarot is a product of the medieval imagination, unless you believe that it bootlegs, you know, ancient Egyptian wisdom as, you know, there's one whole school of opinion in tarotology that argues that. Yeah, but then again, the medievals, that's totally medieval too, to believe that. Yeah. And just before, because I don't want to leave this loose end, you mentioned the two wheels facing the different directions and you essentially said it, but just in case it wasn't clear, the wheels facing different directions is a perfect symbol for what Plato is talking about, which is the chariot must move forward, but is constantly being pulled in opposite directions. So it makes perfect sense that the wheels would be like that. But of course, if they had perspectival art, they would have felt compelled not to do that because it looks like a 12-year-old made the picture. But it actually really works symbolically. Not 12-year-old, fuck, fuck that. It's five-year-old make the picture. But that, <laughs> that kind of naive medieval art has all kinds of symbolic depth if you look at it with some charity. And I think that is always a good approach when interpreting the tarot, mm. is to look at every oddity of these cards, the old cards, like the Marseille deck and, and other old decks, and say, it must be there for a reason. There can be good logical reasons why you would say, well, surely there must be some accidental features in there. And that can be freely admitted while at the same time saying that as a kind of hermeneutic heuristic, I've always wanted to use those two words together in a sentence. Oh, no, 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 no. As a kind of interpretive assumption, an ideal assumption that you understand at the front end is kind of a modeling. It's not like necessarily how you think the world really is. Uh, it's a very helpful assumption. Because so. if you say that you think something's a mistake, like that those wheels are just, um, it's because they didn't know how to draw them in perspective properly, then you're taking away the possible meaningfulness of the symbol. Yes. And just sort of saying, oh, the symbol is just failure, then it can mean nothing more than that. And also, I mean, it's a simple feature of kind of hermeneutics to embrace synchronicity and accident. It's, what's that awesome uh, card from uh, Oblique Strategies? See your error. See your honor, error. Honor, honor thy mistake as a hidden intention. Exactly. And that's or secret intention, something like that. Yeah, as a hidden intention, yeah. That's essentially the attitude of the hermetic critic, right? Who approaches a right. work of art saying, well, I know that, like, like McLuhan talking about King Lear, I know that Shakespeare wasn't actually writing an essay, a treatise on the breakdown of the senses as a result of movable type. But I will read the play as though that was the intention. And I will find all kinds of stuff there. They'll, they'll be on the order of probes, but it's, that's the tool. That's the tool for learning. That's how we discover things. And who knows? Who can tell what's intended and what's accidental? What kind of, like, what, who gives anybody the kind of view from nowhere that could authorize them to decide <laughs> this was intended, this was not? That's just ridiculous. So, I mean, if you actually use the tarot or the I Ching, if you engage in any kind of divinatory practice, you quickly understand that mistakes and errors are how meaningful things in the universe, true messages, manifest. Yeah. 
Tarot draws for one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The very way, like the one indispensable feature of divination is it has to be a random draw. There's countless forms of divination, but all of them have one thing in common, which is randomization. If you came up with the idea of drawing that card, then it isn't divination. No, exactly. And yet you're always in divination honoring a mistake as a hidden intention. I said at the beginning that one reason why I wanted to talk about the chariot is because it's a harder card to spiritualize, that it does have very earthbound meanings, and those meanings are not inconsiderable. They are the core of what the chariot card is. Despite all that, we've been spiritualizing the fuck out of this card, which is sort of unavoidable. But I want to bring in an artwork that I mentioned briefly in passing. The film Superfly from 1972, black exploitation film, and I love this film. I love it mostly because of the score by Curtis Mayfield, one of the greatest of all singer-songwriters in the 20th century and a, a very particular favorite of mine. And the film itself also is for a relatively low-budget film. I find it to be a kind of unforgettable film. It's a film that has stuck with me over the years. So don't think you're too good for Superfly, dear listener, if you think, well, why would I watch a cheesy old black exploitation flick from 1972? Do not assume yourself superior to such culture. It is a meaningful film with an extraordinary score. And the meaningfulness of this film is imparted in part through things like clothes, and cars, Superfly's car, I forget what the model is. It's a kind of a classic car. That was actually owned by a street hustler who, I think, if I'm remembering my Superfly trivia correctly, actually allowed the filmmakers to use his car. And he also ponied up some money to help with the production, so long as he got a brief speaking part in the film. And he appears, uh, he's a you know, real street hustler from the day who does appear in a nightclub scene. But in any event, it's his car. It's a fucking amazing car. Like, I'm not a car guy. I once expressed to you that if I become rich and famous in this lifetime, I probably have to get a signature ride because that's what everybody does when they become rich and famous. You got to have a car and um, whatever beat to shit economy car I happen to be driving won't be it. So if I had to choose one, it would be the car from Superfly. That car is an actor. It's a character in itself. It's putting in work. And that car expresses the ambivalent glory of Youngblood Priest, the protagonist of the film, a street hustler who has come up and is killing the game. He's got the game on lock. He's selling the drugs, but he feels empty. 
like a life of pleasures and indulgence has left him feeling empty. And the ugliness of his milieu, the ugliness of pimping and drug dealing is just getting to him. And so the whole plot of the film is a classic black exploitation flick. A young hustler is after one last big score, big enough that it'll allow him to retire and uh, ride off into the sunset. So the car itself kind of embodies his ambivalent glory. Every time we see it, it's always in a kind of a transition where we hear the instrumental version of Freddy's Dead. It's an awesome song from the soundtrack. And we always see the car as Priest is making his moves, moving from one place to another, obviously. So it becomes like his representative. It becomes like a, almost a proxy for him in the film. Much like the chariot is for the charioteer. Right. Yeah. Or the horse is for the cowboy, you know? Anyway, so I want to talk particularly about the lyrics for the song Superfly, which plays at the very end. It's the outro theme. I mean, the song itself, just like it, it's a song about that ambivalent glory. Superfly means cooler than cool, you know, the perfection of cool. You know, Superfly is what Young Blood Priest is. What's interesting is that the lyrics that Curtis Mayfield wrote for this are full of that ambivalence, the ambivalence of glory. So it starts darkness of night with the moon shining bright. There's a set going strong, a lot of things going on. The man of the hour has an air of great power. The dudes have envied him for so long. And then we get the chorus. But in the verses, there's some really kind of neat lines. The second verse, hard to understand what a hell of a man, this cat of the slum had a mind, wasn't dumb, but a weakness was shown because his hustle was wrong. His mind was his own, but the man lived alone. Mm. His mind was his own, but the man lived alone. That's Anthropos. <laughs> yeah, explain. In the striving for triumph, mm -hmm. in achieving, tri it's, it's the sword of Democles. It's like you achieve it and then you find yourself completely alone at the top yeah. and therefore empty. So it's like you get so rich that money ceases to matter. Yes. And all of a sudden you're poor because you have no money because money doesn't exist anymore. So oh, it's, it's like yeah. that line from Vanessa Onwamesi's story, Dark Neighborhood, light upon light is a darkness. Exactly. Exactly. Money upon money is poverty. So superfly, that status, when you reach the level, the superfly status is when you see the vapidity, emptiness, the sunyata of everything that you've been striving for. Right. Is that, mm -hmm. uh, does that. I haven't seen Superfly, so I don't know how. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a great scene where the hero's like, there's got to be more than this. And his, the guy who has sort of brought him up on the streets, Eddie, he has this great speech where he's like, this is the American dream. We got, you know, color TV in every room, blah, blah, blah. But Priest, he doesn't want to renounce his glory, his victory. And he doesn't. He wants the big score. But his whole direction is towards trying to figure out, like, what is that something more? He's looking for the form, right. And that's a genre thing. That's not unique to Superfly. That's the thing you find in a lot of films that are kind of crime films, but with a sympathetic protagonist who's looking for a way out. Right. One thing is so wonderful in this song, which is a triumphal song. It's like, you know, all rise for Youngblood Priest National Anthem. This is his song. 
if Youngblood Priest was a medieval knight, he would have his bard going out and singing this ahead of him so everybody would know right. how fucking cool this guy is. But then there's a, an aching melancholy, actually, in this song, even though it's like as joyous a song as it gets. There's a bit in the middle where it's, it's, the line is, the game he plays, he plays for keeps, hustling times in ghetto streets, trying to get over. And when Curtis Mayfield sings, trying to get over in his keening, high falsetto voice, there's an ache to that that you mm. feel trying to get over like i'm just trying to get over, i'm trying to make it but in the very act of making it you were left impoverished yeah and then the next verse the aim of his role was to move a lot of blow ask him his dream what does it mean he wouldn't know can't be like the rest is the most he'll confess but time's running out and there's no happiness there we mm. go there, mm. there it is. Even when I want, just want to talk about this fucking badass car, we we're, find ourselves we're moving back backwards. We're back in spiritual, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but, but the, what happens to the car? So at the end, how does the film end? Does he leave it behind? Does he leave that life behind at the end? Or is, does he just triumph and stay? I don't think he drives off in the car, but I think he, he gets to keep his car. Like that's he the, and his that's the key thing. He and his girl just like they walk off into the uh, proverbial sunset. I don't know if they actually walk off in the sunset, but yeah. Right, right. Oh, I love it. I got to watch it. I've been meaning to watch Superfly for a long time. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. This is a perfect bridge to where I was I was hoping we'd go. This idea, because you could, if let's read Superfly's story oh, as- uh, one last yeah. one last yeah, thing. Please. You said he gets to keep his car. Of course he does. You don't graduate from the chariot. Exactly. You're still the charioteer. And it's worth noting, this song is the song you listen to when you want to feel like you're a fly motherfucker. Just the bass line. Bomb. 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 Oh! It just, <laughs> it just makes me want to drive around in my Prius, feeling yeah. like I'm a badass. <laughs> <laughs> want to step too far away from that I, we're still in this no, zone no, no, no. I, 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 that, I, I just want to finish that off but please let's go in the direction you wanted to go but isn't that an interesting trope the trope of the guy i've seen this in other films he's lost everything and so is living in his car so the, the car is a constant oh, yeah um you still need the car you need the chariot no matter what it's the chariot that will take you higher to the higher love we're talking about into the spiritual it's not a different chariot from the one that took you to the triumph in this world. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. But let's read for a second, just read Superfly's story as a kind of exemplar of species ego, of the human ego, the modern human anthropos, which has placed itself in the position formerly occupied by God, right? We've talked about this in various episodes. And what happens is that it achieves mastery Right, You could argue that modern humanity has subjected the world to its will in various ways and has achieved a kind of mastery, but then again finds itself completely alone at the end, having evacuated all the others. Another thing we've discussed before, the demons, spirits, moral forces that Charles Taylor goes on about have been evacuated. So all of a sudden we're in control, but we're basically on the trash heap of a planet that we've wrecked going, well, what's the point, right? 
Indeed. And I wanted to go there because when you mentioned on our Discord that, you know, talking about the chariot is also just talking about cars, it put me yeah. in mind of, of revisiting J.G. Ballard's uh, novel Crash, which is mm. one of my favorite novels of all time. I would love to do it one day. And I think you would enjoy it. We it's sh- really good. We should. We should. You've, you've brought it up so many times. Yes. I really feel like we should read it. So in this novel Crash, Ballard is using the car as an index of the kind of postmodern, post-Hiroshima condition. It is, of course, an object of desire and a vehicle of desire. You look at how cars are advertised. They are a fulfillment. They are the completion of your identity. They are branded in a way. They're kind of the template on which all other branding depends, really. And this goes Mm. back to the Model T, right? When Henry Ford, like, a car for everybody. The car is a very bizarre modern development. I don't think no one could foresee it because what it is, is it's a very technical, specialized machine that through a series of circumstances became widely available for civilians. It's the type of thing that was at the beginning, you would have thought, well, there'll be military applications for this and industrial applications for this. But all of a sudden, everybody's getting a car, which I think was a kind of crazy thing when it was happening. Like, who would have foreseen that everybody would have their own horseless chariot to like whiz around on? It's crazy. And also, the other thing that we weren't aware of is that with the internal combustion engine, we weren't just creating a technology for getting from point A to point B, we were creating a vast planetary machine for heating the atmosphere, you know? Yes, uh, right. And, and, and so it was this weird archetypal thing. And what Ballard is doing in Crash is he's looking at the car as a kind of dream object and looking at the car crash as the index of the real cataclysm unfolding around us. He says here in his uh, introduction to the French edition, it's a wonderful essay he wrote, it doesn't have a title, but the main idea is the death of affect, which he sees as one of the, the main features of post-World War II Western life. He says, Crash, of course, is not concerned with an imaginary disaster, however imminent, but with a pandemic cataclysm institutionalized in all industrial societies that kills hundreds of thousands of people each year and injures millions. And a little later, he says, the ultimate role of Crash is cautionary, a warning against the brutal, erotic, and overlit realm that beckons more and more persuasively to us from the margins of the technological landscape. So looking at the car, not as a simple historical contrivance, but rather as a potent dream symbol that might give us insight into the archetype of Anthropos, into what humanity is making itself into. Because ultimately what you have in Crash are people who are, they have a sexual fetish and their fetish is the car crash. So not Mm -hmm. just the mangled bodies in the cars, but the damage done to the cars themselves, the way the dashboard is all busted up, the way that blood and semen mix with engine oil. It's a very difficult novel to read. It's very, very dark. All of this is sexualized by these people. There's a copy of the manuscript that was submitted to a publisher, and the reader had just written on the front page, um, this man should be institutionalized. I'm like, that's basically, people thought he was completely crazy. Uh, but today, you read Crash Today, and you see that how prescient he was. Not that we have car crash cults going around, although we have, we probably do, for all we know, like in this day and age. But he had a kind of insight into the amalgamation of flesh and chrome, the union of the human and its own technological inventions 
he was seeing something really, really important about the triumph that the car represents and the ultimate defeat that it brings on, or the ultimate enantiodromia that it simultaneously represents, in the sense that the car becomes the symbol of the fullness and the emptiness of modern life. I mean, in this discourse, the car or chariot becomes the ultimate sign of the human. The species ego of the human. Yeah, I think the so. The species yeah. ego of the human. Yeah. And it sounds like from what you're saying about this novel, which I haven't read, that that is ultimately Ballard's insight, that the car yes. is the projection of or the emblem of the species ego of the human. He doesn't put it in those terms, but essentially that's what how I interpret it. Yeah, for sure. And yet, perhaps because there is some ambivalence in this symbol to start with, there is a point of reversal where it ceases to be human at all. And so I want to invoke Ezekiel's chariot mm. and the idea of the UFO. Not that I necessarily have uh, deep insights. I, uh, I haven't read very much either of the book of Ezekiel or about the book of Ezekiel. That was not part of my preparation. It only just occurred to me now that maybe we might talk about well, it. What do we need to know? It's a flying chariot. There's wheels within wheels. Yeah, there's wheels within wheels. It's a kind of angelic structure, angelic organism that is also a kind of technology. It's yes, it, it's yes, like the chariot in the card, which is almost a centaur-like creature, a kind of a technological centaur, where like you see the man, the charioteer from the waist up. But you might imagine that maybe that's all there is of him, that his lower half is the chariot and the horses are growing visual. I mean, maybe we could say it's because the person who drew them doesn't know how to draw a horse's hind end. But as we've said, this is not a helpful hermeneutic conceit. You know, the horses are growing out of the chariot. It's this hybrid being. And Ezekiel's chariot also, it's like it's a machine with wheels, but there's angels and yeah. that, and they are all part of the same hybrid structure, which when you think about it is also true of the UFO phenomenon. Exactly. I, I just want to mention briefly that I've always thought that the horses look like the charioteer's legs. <laughs> I never thought of that. I like that. That's good. I, I totally agree that there's... there's a very kind of compositional nature to the way the whole thing. And I love that it's called the chariot, not the charioteer, because it's drawing attention to the chariot. But the charioteer is obviously the character here because they're all the same. The chariot is a, an assemblage that includes a charioteer and the horses and the wheels. In that sense, it is like the UFO. Because the UFO, if you look at the latest reports, right, it's both technological and weirdly organic. Is it, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a weird amalgamation of the dichotomy such that we can't really differentiate anymore. So yeah, it has that. There's one kind of UAP that people have been seeing that looks kind of like how you might imagine the Dementors from Harry Potter to look. They've got fucking tendrils or tentacle looking things. Yeah. You know, they look organic. They look sort of like sky squid. And I've seen some footage of like, you'll see a saucer and all of a sudden it starts to drip. Like it's fall, like it's turning to yes. mercury or something. It's like what the yes. fuck? Yeah. So you know, please understand that I'm not saying that I know what those fucking things are, and I'm not necessarily buying in on the idea that they're aliens or whatever. But I do 
believe that there is shit in the skies that we don't know what that is and their card would be the chariot so here's a question you know the ufo phenomenon being so profoundly mysterious almost nothing can be said about it except that there is a phenomenon right we've been talking about this phenomenon whose main characteristic is that it registers on our attention as a phenomenon on which we have to take sides like maybe we believe in this shit or maybe we don't but whatever it's in our face can we find some way of laminating what that phenomenon is onto the stuff we were talking about in the first part of this conversation. Yes, I think we can. But first we need to talk about, I think, what is it about UFOs that make them such a concern for like the military industrial complex, right? For the military establishments. What is it? It's speed. It's the speed at mm -hmm. which they move. That's what I would say. This is what you hear all the pilots saying. They're performing maneuvers that we can't understand. They move at tremendous speeds. They can go from zero to Mach 3 in like 0.2 seconds. I don't know. I'm just making that up. But the idea is they can do things that planes can't. Oh, I mean, like, for example, like just one example in the famous Nimitz case where they moved the better part of a mile in 0.7 seconds. Like so, going down from like the stratosphere down to surface level and then back up again. Just basically like bump, bump, like that speed. Yeah. At the speed of thought. Yeah. If human beings were in there, they would just be pink goo. Right. The G-forces would just shred any organic tissue, right? So we don't understand how that shit is possible. We don't understand how it's possible. But no, something is there and they're tracking it. And it's concerning because I think if you want to just boil it down, because the speed at which they, which, at which they move. There is a very interesting thinker. His name is Paul Virilio. I've only closely read one of his books called... Um, War in Cinema, The Logistics of Perception, a phenomenal book where he's talking about technological changes occasioning changes in perception, how we perceive reality and perceive the world, and how that has uh, played out in the history of warfare. But ultimately for him, it all boils down to speed. He coined the term dromology for this particular study of speed as a factor in human history. Just like McLuhan looked at human history from the point of view of media, he looks at it from the point of view of speed. And what one of the things he says is, you know, he'll say, like, for example, in a military context, we go from foot soldiers with spears to suddenly soldiers pulled on chariots by horses. And eventually there's the stirrup, and all of a sudden we have the centaur, the horseman who can move even mm -hmm. faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the same with um, competitive technologies in the naval world, right? Uh, how right. ships, which ship moves fastest. It's always about mm -hmm. developing a faster ship. And this, of course, has value or importance in the realm of trade. For instance, Marx wrote about this in, uh, how do you pronounce it? Grundrisse. Is that how they, you pronounce sure. that book of his? The Grundrisse. <laughs> um, I've realized I've never said it out loud. So uh, these are Marx's notebooks on capitalism and all that. This is what he writes about capitalism as a kind of technological development in Western civilization, right? It changes everything. He says, quote, capital by its nature drives beyond every spatial barrier. Thus, the creation of the physical condition of exchange, of the means of communication and transport, the annihilation of space by time becomes an extraordinary necessity for it. Mm. Only insofar as the direct product can be realized in distant markets and mass quantities in proportion to reductions in the transport costs, 
and only insofar as at the same time the means of communication and transport themselves can yield spheres of realization of for labor, driven by capital, only insofar as commercial traffic takes place in massive volume, in which more than necessary labor is replaced, only to that extent is the production of cheap means of communication and transport a condition for production based on capital and promoted by it for that reason. So what he's saying is that speed becomes a key thing in capitalism. How fast can you produce goods? How fast can you get goods to their markets? And that spurs technological development in this realm. And the idea, the metaphysical process that's going on here is a translation of space into time. Space becomes mm. subject to time. And there's a, what he, he says, the annihilation of space by time. Time becomes primary. Whether something is 200 kilometers or 2000 kilometers away only matters insofar as your means of transport are able to reach each point. The faster your means of transport, the less space matters. And the goal, the kind of entelechy that's guiding that, is to reach a point where speed becomes immediate, speed becomes infinite. In other words, our technologies move at the speed of thought. In Macbeth, when Macbeth becomes the modern tyrant, he starts to yearn to be able to, to act at the speed of thought. He says, for instance, uh, he's railing against time. He says, time, thou anticipatest my dread exploits. The flighty purpose never is overtook unless the deed go with it. From this moment, the very firstlings of my heart shall be the firstlings of my hand. And even now to crown my thoughts with acts, be it thought and done. So he's saying that in order to win, in order to retain his power, in order to triumph, right? He needs to be able to act at the speed of thought. And that's exactly what the UFO does. It moves at the speed of thought. It represents the ideal for which all this technological advancement, this techno-capitalism, is, uh, it's the ideal that it, it's always trying to attain and always falls short of. And this is another way in which, you, like you mm. were saying last time, the UFO represents the outside of capital. It's that it is representing, mm. it's the strange attractor that's motivating this constant acceleration, right? To use a term from Nick Land, but it can never achieve it. So for me, the rise of Anthropos is inseparable from the annihilation of space and the subjugation of the intolerable intervals to the immediacy of digital thinking. In other words, of a system that can move at the speed of thought. And that's what the UFOs represent. That's what the UFO represents. And that's why the UFO is so deeply connected to the chariot. Hmm. Well, then from this point of view, the UFO... I still haven't read Jung's book on UFOs, but UFO is manifesting the human to the human, They're manifesting ourselves to ourselves. Yeah. And you see that in the trope, the idea that they're time travelers from the future. You often hear that. What if they're time yes. travelers? Yeah. Well, that's what it is. It's, a, it's an image. What is the gray? The gray is the perfectly transformed figure of the human after techno-capitalism. It's all head. Yeah, it's, it, it, the body has become yeah. simply uh, a metabolic appendage that just makes the brain function. <laughs> yes, the gray yes. is our own face looking back at us. It's what we want to become with huge eyes, eyes like lenses. We talked about this with Michael Garfield in the the Age of Glass episode early on, where we are in an age of screens of our eyes moving, tracking things constantly. We are kind of great big brains with huge eyes attached. Now, if we were thinking in a McLuhan-ish way, McLuhan would say, actually, it's the auditory surround. Well, that's the background. 
He knew that because it was the background, but the foreground, yeah. what we think we're doing is becoming increasingly visual. Yes. But he's just drawing our attention to the background, which we're unaware of. That's the acoustic. Sure. Yeah. So then from this point of view, we could refine this insight and say that the gray and the UFO is an emblem of our desire of what we want, not what we actually are, what we want. What our egos want. Yeah. 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 Nice. It's the secret desire of which we're not aware, you know, in Stalker, when he says your innermost desire, you're not aware of it, but we see it come up in the dream that is the UFO. If we were to do a Weird Studies Tarot, we might consider card seven to be essentially a gray with dominating the top half of the card, and then the bottom half would be like a flying saucer. Yeah. <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>